This is the first day of this July 2022 seven-day session. And uh, we'll be reading, to start off with this, this session, we're reading about, from the teachings of the great uh, Japanese Zen master Muso. Uh, he's referred to as Muso Kokushi. Kokushi uh, means national teacher. He's the national teacher Muso. He lived in the uh, 13th and 14th centuries, um, just after the great Zen master Dogen. Just for some uh, trans transcultural comparison, during his lifetime, his contemporaries were Marco Polo, Chaucer, Dante, Meister Eckhart. Um, during his lifetime is when the Black Death devastated Europe. The uh, Aztecs established what is now Mexico City. And tennis as an outdoor game began. <laughs> Uh, there's not a lot here about, uh, about biographical information about Musso. Um, here just first uh, uh, something about his time there. Uh, this is from the translator's introduction. The translator is uh, uh, Thomas Cleary. Uh, he says that all of uh, continental China had been taken over by the Mongol warriors under Kublai Khan. And then this Kublai Khan <clears throat> went further uh, <clears throat> to the south and the east, and his uh, invasion forces reached southern Japan by sea in the late 1270s and early 1280s. Um, it's right about when Muso was born. And as the records have it, uh, his force was repelled from Japan by a kamikaze, spiritual wind, which is an, a, a, a storm. Uh, the drove the, the, the Chinese, or from the Mongols, rather, uh, from the coast, and also uh, by a valiant defense, collaborative defense, staged by heroic warriors from all over Japan. So two factors, the uh, storm that drove them away and these heroic warriors. Now, this is the part that I think we might take some heart from here in our 21st century. He says, ironically, the salvation of Japan from Mongolian invasion also planted seeds for the downfall of the military regime. And this is how, under feudal custom, uh, successful bravery in battle was rewarded by land grant. 
And so there were, there was, there were many, uh, so many of these Japanese heroes uh, that there was no way to compensate them all adequately in the traditional manner under the conditions of the time. And then as a result, there was a great big drain on natural resources, the Japanese natural resources, and the, uh, and the in inevitable disgruntlement of some warrior clans. And this, this uh, undermined the stability of the regime. I just say this because uh, it's so hard to know when in times of fortune or misfortune, what it'll lead to. We, we so easily react to, well, like now, all of the terrible things that are happening now in the world, the pandemic, climate change, terrible political divisions, war in Europe, and then on and on. Uh, who knows? Who knows? What, what might unfold from this time of so much danger and suffering. This book, this collection of Musso's teachings uh, were given to, uh, were, are really basically replies uh, to a certain um, certain government, high government official, uh, the, the younger brother of the shogun at the time. So, on to Musso's biography, such as we have it here. He's born in 1275. And uh, he was raised from childhood in the Shingon school of Japanese Buddhism. So not, not Zen, the beginning. But then he went on to train in Zen under both Chinese and Japanese masters. This was the, the, the very um, birth of Zen in Japan when... Uh, uh, People like Musso and, and others would have to go to China to get their early training. It hadn't really taken root yet in, in Japan. So he, he trained under both masters from both countries. Uh, Musso's main Japanese teacher, Koho, had been an imperial prince who left the worldly life to learn Zen from uh, another uh, transplanted Chinese master. It says here the Musso became a highly skilled teacher, producing more than 50 enlightened disciples, which is a, it's a very unusual number. It's no wonder that he became uh, the national teacher. That's where the emperors appoint someone. Uh, became the teacher of the shogun, but also of the emperor, who gave him that title, Kokshi. 
And then he was also so entitled by several successive imperial courts, including posthumous honors. He was awarded the title Kokshi by no fewer than seven emperors. It's an extraordinary uh, honor. And he was also famous as a master of calligraphy and the art of garden design. So much for the life of Muso. Now let's dig into the, uh, these, these replies that he gave. He starts off um, right at the all-important, uh, the, the four bodhisattva vows that we recite two or three times a day in Sashin. He says, those who seek liberation for themselves alone cannot become fully enlightened. It may be said that one who is not already liberated cannot liberate others, but the very process of forgetting oneself to help others is itself liberating. So this is a, a common, uh, common enough objection by beginners. How can I uh, resolve to um, liberate all beings when I'm not liberated myself. But uh, this would be Musso's answer. Just forgetting about the self to help others is itself liberating. And then he adds, those who seek to benefit themselves alone actually harm themselves by doing so. While those who help others also help themselves by doing so. The whole notion of self versus other is the problem. I'm going to be, as always, skipping around from one entry to another. Some of these just aren't, uh, these don't work for uh, Teisho. Here's another uh, fundamental warning. There is ultimately no means of safeguarding anything in this world. Anything you gain can be lost, destroyed, or taken away. For this reason, if you make the acquisition and retention of goods or status your aim in life, this is a way to anxiety and sorrow. There was a bumper sticker uh, some years ago. Um, Whoever has the most money when he dies wins. Ironic, of course. And yet if we look closely, this is the governing principle for vast hundreds of millions of people. How can I acquire more money? How can I acquire more goods? Status, of course. But it's all going to go. I 
Is that, is that where we want to be when we're dying, having devoted our lives to acquiring money and status? The uh, great Tibetan master, Milarepa, uh, I think gets at this so well when he says, all worldly pursuits have but one unavoidable and inevitable end, which is sorrow. Acquisitions end in dispersion. Buildings in destruction. Meetings in separation. Births in death. Knowing this, one should, from the very first, renounce acquisition and heaping up and building and meeting and faithful to an eminent teacher set about realizing the truth. I think most people who attend Sashin have a <clears throat> probably more than an inkling of this, of the wisdom of this. To give up a, a week's vacation or a week of income or some other sacrifice like that uh, suggests that uh, you've got your your eye on the ball, you recognize <clears throat> the limitations of worldly concerns. And really, when you look at what Miller's words carefully, <clears throat> Miller Rupert's words, you can see that if you take them really literally, <clears throat> he's talking about monasticism. You know? Giving up meetings. Meeting people, meeting uh, people romantically, match.com or other these other services. <clears throat> even if you find the perfect person. It's only a matter of time before you, you lose that person. Either you go first or that other person goes first. Musso and Milarepa are, are facing the facts this, we are, we are caught on this wheel of suffering, and yet, and yet, through serious practice, and especially through some degree of awakening, we can find freedom, even in this worldly life. separation, 
the, the Buddha talked about uh, four kinds of suffering. Two of them are uh, being apart from people we want to be with, having to be apart from people we want to be with, and uh, having to be with people we don't want to be with. But <clears throat> as far as the first one, being separated from loved ones. It's painful. But less so when we have cultivated the ability to be fully present right where we are, here. It's thoughts about the other being at a distance. It's thoughts that generate so much of the pain. We can acknowledge missing people dear to us, children, lovers, friends. We can acknowledge that we, we miss them without dwelling in thoughts about them being away, far away from us. That makes all the difference. That's the difference between pain and suffering. Pain is the inevitable missing of someone. And then the suffering is, on, is something on top of the pain. That's where we have a chance to really um, find some relief, freedom through Zen practice, being present, not lost in thoughts of if only, thoughts of the past, thoughts of the future. Here's another one. It is a characteristic tendency of human beings to indulge in emotions such as happiness, grief, or anger in response to present conditions, failing to balance these feelings with the awareness that present conditions are results of past causes. In other words, uh, ignoring that it's that everything is cause and effect that this whatever whatever happiness or whatever positive or negative feelings we, we find ourselves having uh, it's it's the effect of previous causes <clears throat> he goes on it is illogical to face the present only as an object of enjoyment or tolerance, neglecting to use it as the opportunity to create the future. There are these <clears throat> amazing stories of people who win the lottery, win big, the grand lottery, 200, 300, 500 million dollars, and how miserable their lives become after doing that. 
more often than not. Everyone wants to win the lottery, but then what happens? Suicide. Terrible things happen. There's a documentary, that uh, fascinating documentary about, it's called uh, Lucky. It's about seven lottery winners and how their lives are changed. This would be uh, an example of the happiness side of present conditions. It just just thinking, yeah, just how lucky, uh, without recognizing that what goes up must come down, or can very well come down. I think the only person in this documentary who did really well was a man who used his immense wealth to sudden immense wealth to uh, build a compound of homes for his family his family from vietnam in other words giving giving to others using it for others there's one poor guy who who won all this wealth and then just completely squandered it in the most absurd ways. He he found a pair of pants, a pair of trousers that he liked, so he bought 400 of them. It's not what happens to us, but it's the underlying character structure. Are we equipped to deal with either extreme fortune or extreme misfortune. That's that's what we're doing here. We're forging character in Sashin and generally in Zen practice. Building the structure, refining personality and character. So whatever befalls us, we can more easily manage. So again, <clears throat> uh, the problem of facing the present only as an object of enjoyment or tolerance and neglecting to use it as the opportunity to create the future. We read these stories of people who, uh, let's go to the other side, misfortune, uh, being convicted of something serious, who, who have the resources, the personal resources, inner resources to really change their lives. Now, continuing under the... Uh, the topic of cause and effect, karma. He says, causes are complex and have different time scales. The efforts of the individual are not the sole determining factor in the individual's condition in life because everyone is part of the nexus of society and nature and the continuum of time. It is common for people to attribute causes wrongly 
because of misperceptions of real relationships. So imagining that we have more control or power than we really do. The efforts of the individual are not the sole determining factor. And let's, let's bring that home here to Sashin. Our efforts in Sashin are not the sole factor. We can have heroic efforts. We can, we can uh, sit up every night and sit through break periods. It's not the only factor. Because we're part of this great web of causes and conditions also based on the past. He's, then he adds, every cause is the effect of something else and every effect is the cause of something else. What may seem a curse may be a blessing and what may seem a blessing may be a curse. Again, back to that uh, invasion, that would-be invasion, that thwarted invasion of the Mongols of, of Japan with the kamikaze, the wind, the storm. And how it led to social, drastic social change in Japan, the, the victory of the Japanese. Hardship is a blessing when it spurs effort and development. Ease is a curse when it increases complacency and self-indulgence. Back to the 400 pairs of pants. Sometimes it takes something dramatic, a dramatic change of fortune for the better or for the worse for us to discover what we're made of. When someone formally becomes a student of mine in a ceremony, I always invite them to write uh, a very short um, biographical piece about, um, especially uh, focusing on what it is in their past that they think may have led them to spiritual practice. And what, what it is for most of us is pain. It's, it's loss. Crises. It doesn't have to be. And there are different degrees of, of loss and pain. Some people are just more ready to turn to spiritual practice and doesn't take the death of someone close to them or some other terrible loss. Others, it takes something more dramatic to get them to see, see the ultimate uh, limitations of worldly fortune and misfortune. He says, now, <clears throat> if you forget your feelings about things of the world, again, 
fortune, misfortune, if you forget your feelings about them, they become enlightening teachings. So not dwelling in feelings of whatever, self-pity or uh, self-congratulation. And then he says, if you get emotional about enlightening teaching, it becomes a worldly thing. It brings to mind a koan in the Blue Cliff Record where a, a certain government official says, uh, uh, he quotes a master uh, as uh, saying, uh, all things return to the one or something like that. I don't have it uh, in my mind, and uh, then and and then this government official says to the to the master he's facing he says, "Isn't that marvelous?" Now we don't know how much emotion there was behind that, but enough for the master to reply. Some people see this flower, this peony here. Some people see it as if lost in a dream. Emotions are not the ultimate. As Aitken Roshi said, emotions are feelings, I think. Feelings are not the floor of the mind. There is something beyond emotions and feelings, just as there is something beyond thought. Some people, they, they'll accept, okay, uh, we have to get beyond thought, but they're so attached to their world of feelings and emotions that they think, well, this is what really counts. This is it. Feelings and emotions. Yes, get rid of thoughts, but feelings and emotion, now that's which, what's true. Well, look and see. This week, if you get into some kind of emotional state, state of despondency, discouragement in Sashin, or euphoria, see, see, see how long it lasts. Hopefully not long. Nothing has any self-substance to it. There are no roots. There are no roots to our thoughts. There are no roots to our feelings or emotions. What is beyond all things? Now he turns to the topic of virtue. Doing good, seeking rewards, is contaminated virtue. Doing good without thought of reward, dedicating it to enlightenment, is uncontaminated virtue. 
contamination and non-contamination refer to the state of mind of the doer, not to the good deed itself. I think most people hearing this are onto this. This is part of our, our chanting service each day, the, uh, the return of merit. Ten directions, three worlds, all Buddhas, Bodhisattva, Maha, Sattvas. No, it's right before that. Faith in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha brings true liberation. We now return the merit of our chanting to. In other words, getting ourselves unattached to the idea of merit or rewards. These different features of our chanting services may, to some people, just seem like rituals, just something to go through the motions. But by, by verbalizing these things, all these profound teachings, these sutras and other things, by, by actually voicing them, we come to more closely embody them. We, we come to understand them better, stand them in, in the body rather than just conceptually. It's a big part of what chanting is about. Over and over and over again, hundreds, thousands of times doing these, these chants, we assimilate them in the most, the only important way, which is in the body. Next, there is a vast potential latent within human beings that remains undiscovered because of the limitations placed on consciousness by habitual preoccupations. The recommendations that all cravings be relinquished does not mean that detachment itself is a goal. It is a means of breaking through self-imposed restrictions and opening up this inexhaustible treasury of potential. So, he's talking about renunciation. He says, uh, the, the recommendation that we give up all cravings um, is not to be understood as something that has virtue in itself, but that it can crack open uh, our clinging, our, our attachments, This would, here's another example, Sashin example, Yaza, the late night sitting. Um, most of us have some attachment to sleep. Not that we don't need sleep, of course we do. Sleep is an important part of so many uh, physical and mental functions. But uh, the, the extent, how much sleep do we really need, especially when we're sitting 10 or more hours a day. So to, to do extra sitting, to, to go without 
seven hours of sleep, instead do some sitting. It's not just to be doing the extra sitting, it's because uh, it's practice, it's a good word, it's practice at letting go of relinquishing uh, one of our attachments, one of our many attachments. I have a personal example of this. When I was still working on my first koan, uh, at a certain point in Sashin, I'd been to quite a few Sashins and was getting more desperate. And, uh, and Roshi Kaplow said, if you're, if you're desperate enough, try something different. Give up something. Uh, and he gave the example of uh, skipping a meal. Now, I had, I had my whole life been grown very attached to getting my three meals a day. And even in, 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 in Zen practice in Sashin, I would always go to breakfast, always go to lunch, always go to dinner. I wouldn't have much. I knew that much that I, I had to uh, eat less. It's a, it can be very helpful to one's concentration to eat less. Roshi Kaplow's first teacher, Harada Roshi, used to say, it's helpful in Sashin to eat one-third to one-half less than you normally would. And uh, I have no doubt that's, that's true. But uh, so I had eaten very, very little and, and have a little tiny bit on my plate, but I never, never altogether skipped a meal, not gone into the dining room. And I was just desperate enough at that sashin to say, okay, by God, I've tried everything else. I've been sitting up getting only a couple hours of sleep a night. I've been sitting break periods. I've been doing this. I've been doing that. I, I have to try something else. So I skipped dinner on the last night of Sashin. And it was that night in Doksan when Roshi uh, passed me in my first koan. Now, did, did having, uh, did foregoing that tiny bit of dinner make a difference in itself? I doubt it. My I was usually had a mostly empty stomach anyway after a meal, but it's breaking the patterns, the patterns that we hold on to so dearly. This is one of the opportunities of Sashin. And that may mean really looking, okay, where am I, where am I, uh, what, what am I really habituated in? What are my habits now in Sashin? Certain ways, times of sleeping or not sleeping, Eating, not eating. There's not a lot much more in Sashin than those. Try mixing it up. If you always uh, sit uh, extra at night before going to bed, well, try moving that extra sitting, those extra whatever, two or three hours. Move it to the other end of the night. Go to bed earlier if you're good and tired and get up in the middle of the night. See what you might experiment with. There's nothing wrong with experimenting during Sashin. It can be quite illuminating and, and liberating, really. Again, the phrase here is our pre habitual 
preoccupations. And the big ones, these go back <laughs> to the beginning of time, is uh, food, sleep, sex. Those are the big ones. And then along the same vein, he says, just as greed for worldly things is inhibiting and self-defeating, so also craving for other worldly things prevents the opening of the mind. Craving for other worldly things. Craving for psychic powers. Oh. Craving for peak experiences. Craving for enlightenment prevents the opening of the mind. Having the aspiration to come to awakening for the sake of all beings is nothing we ever would need to apologize for. It's a wonderful thing, a great resource, a great asset to practice is wanting to be liberated from this wheel, this wheel of samsara, but not to mentally crave it in, in terms of thinking about it in the mind. If it's there, it's there. We don't need to think about it. We just need to use it in the service of the practice we're working on, the breath practice or the koan or whatever we're working on. Craving for otherworldly things would also mean drugs, drug experiences, preventing the opening of the mind. When people are unsympathetic to you, let's say, when people are mean to you, and the world does not go as you wish, this should be a help to detachment of feelings from the repetitious cycle of becoming and decaying, gaining and losing. So that's how we can take when, when, when we're met with hostility uh, from others. Um, we can take that to, as a reminder of how we have to detach from our feelings of liking and disliking, from the repetitious cycle of becoming and decay, gaining and losing. It goes back to what, what we were reading about 20 minutes ago, that, uh, that we, can, we can use um, unpleasant, adverse uh, experiences and conditions. We can use those things to, as, as a spur to see what is beyond them. 
All right, our time is up. We'll stop now and recite the four vows.